The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Now I'd invite you uh, to stand with me. And we are going to read God's word, but I'm going to pray uh, for us as we enter into this time of his word and to the sermon. Father, we come and with these goals and vision that we have, we ask that you would confirm over and over again that these are your goals, your vision. Uh, this is your uh, desire for your church here at HHPC. Father, we pray that you would give us a winsomeness in uh, confidence in the community uh, to go out in word and to deed, to serve and to speak, uh, to care for uh, the needs of others and share Christ with them, that we would love one another well and care for one another well. Father, for all the different things that we desire to do in your name, we pray that we would never lose sight of the fact that we don't want to be a great church, but we want to be a church that points people to a great God. Father, we thank you for our team, for Matt, and for Stacy, for Chris, and for the others on the team, those who are in the midst of transition. We pray uh, that these transitions would be smooth and that the ministries of this church would be expanded, not decreased. Father, now as we come to your word, speak to us as our king Speak to us as we learn what it means to live within your kingdom. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please remain standing as we hear from the Lord. In Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, this is Christ speaking as he had come and just announced the 12 apostles, and he begins to preach what is known as the Sermon on the Plain instead of the Sermon on the Mount. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all over Judea, Jerusalem, seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on your cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, and what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you receive to expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to the sinners to get back the same amount. 
but love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with that measure, you will, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And he told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teachers, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log in your own eye, then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. But the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built, been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A short passage that we won't get through today, but we will try. We'll at least cover it in large form to touch on a number of different things. Jesus has just come down from the mountain. He's named the 12 apostles. He says that he's on a large plain. He's on an area where he uh, is and the people are gathering around him. It's a great crowd of people. And one of the things that you notice and you learn within any gathered crowd is that there are three types of people within that crowd. Uh, Jesus begins and he says, he came down to them and a great multitude of his disciples and a multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, seacoast of Tyre, who came to him and to be healed of their diseases, and those troubled with unclean spirits, and many sought to touch him, because they could touch him, and it said power came out of his person, and they were healed. What a a phenomenal uh, mystery of the second person of the Trinity, and his full godness, and his full deity, coming through his full humanity uh, to heal people. And so in the crowd, you found the consumer, the curious, and the committed. The consumer was there because all they wanted, and there are all three of these here today. There are all three at any time within the gathered church or the gathered body. There's the consumer who comes only to get something from Christ and not wanting his teaching and not really wanting him. There were some who came only to be healed. And then they wanted to go away and have nothing to do uh, with this Galilean rabbi. And so some in the church today, and the large problem within the church today is consumerism. 
that we want something from Jesus. We want Jesus to fix our marriages. We want Jesus to fix our children. We want Jesus uh, to give us a, a spouse. We want Jesus to give us kids. We want Jesus to take care of our financial ruin, our addiction, all of these things. We want Jesus to fix these things. We just want to touch him. We want to get close enough to get the power from him, but we don't want to stay in close proximity to him. Uh, we'll go back to doing whatever it is that we need to do, and we'll call him when we need him again. There's the consumer. There's also the curious, and some of you here today are curious. Some of you listening in uh, this morning would be in that category. For the curious had heard about him, maybe had seen some of the miracles uh, that he had done, and they wanted to learn more. Uh, they hadn't decided whether they believed him yet and believed in him yet, but they were curious. They were enamored by him. They'd never heard teaching like this before. They'd never seen power uh, like this before, and maybe uh, that describes you. That you're interested, but you're not yet committed. That you're curious. And curiosity is a good thing. I, I want to encourage that. I want to stoke that in you. Become more curious. Continue to investigate Jesus. Continue to study uh, his word. Continue uh, to talk to healthy followers of Christ about their relationship with Christ. And, and build on that curiosity, but don't leave yourself in the curious position. Pray that you would move into the committed that you would be there. There were some, he said, who were his disciples. Those who had said, I've seen him, I've heard him, I am throwing all of my chips into that basket. I am fully committed to him. I don't do it perfectly, but I'm fully committed. I I've given my life to him. I've given my allegiance to him. I am going to walk under his standard. I, I am in his kingdom and doing his will and, and through my life. So there were three types of people there that day, and there's three types of people here today and one of the things that we need to learn better within the Christian church is how to communicate to all three groups. One message, one size doesn't fit all. The content needs to be the same, but how we shape that message is different. To challenge the consumer to move away from consumerism, uh, to encourage uh, the curious to come and, and to strengthen the committed uh, to come and to grow in their relationship. Now, Jesus' message, and this is incredibly important, not only for this lesson, but for your total and full understanding of the 66 books of the Bible, your, your understanding of your life. And that was the idea and the, the principle of kingdom. Jesus came, and what he's doing on this in this sermon is he is preaching on the kingdom and what life in the kingdom looks like, his kingdom. In Luke 4, verse 43, it says this, Jesus speaking, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was sent for the express purpose of preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven and establishing that kingdom here on earth. When he came, it says that the kingdom of earth is now, or the kingdom of heaven is now present uh, in the kingdom uh, of this world. He was establishing his kingdom. And those who are followers of Christ, those who say, I now commit myself to King Jesus, we now gain access and citizenship into his kingdom. And so we are in his kingdom while still being a part of another kingdom, the kingdom of this world. And guess what we need to understand about these two kingdoms? They don't like one another. The kingdom of this world and its king, Satan, the evil one, the deceiver, 
This kingdom hates the kingdom of Christ and all the followers of Christ. So when we're praying and saying, we want to believe and pray that 24 people will come to faith in Jesus, what we're saying is 24 people will change citizenship. And the king of this world, the king of this natural kingdom, hates that. And he will do everything in his power to keep us from accomplishing that goal. Because when someone comes into the kingdom of Christ, that means they've left his kingdom. His kingdom is diminished while Christ's kingdom is expanded. And so we need to understand that it is a kingdom mindset that we gain. And that it is a kingdom unlike the kingdom of this world. Many have described it as it is an inverse kingdom. It is an upside down kingdom. The values of this world, get as much as you can uh, and be the most powerful, the nicest, the, the most popular to gain all that you can gain. That's what this world says. Work, 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 work hard to gain and to do all. The kingdom of Christ is inverted. And it says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the marginalized. Blessed are the weak. Blessed are those who have nothing. Blessed are those who give away all that they have because they know that they're blessed. Blessed are those who don't aim at earth. They aim at heaven and guess what they find? That earth is thrown in. It is an inverse kingdom. And it is a kingdom that is in constant conflict. So as you think about this idea of kingdoms, I want to posit this thought with you. Too many professing Christians are more enamored with the kingdom of this world than they are with the kingdom of heaven. Too many professing Christians are more enamored with the kingdom of this world and what it has to offer than they are with the kingdom of heaven. We're coming up on a change possibly within the seat of power within our own country. Do you know more about the candidates that are going to be coming in November than you do about Christ as the true king? Do you know more about the Republican or the Democratic platforms and all the pieces of their platforms, what they stand for and what they stand against than you do for the kingdom of heaven and Christ the true king? Are, are we more enamored with all that is about this world? Do we know more about, well, I'll ask it this way. What informs your first thoughts in the morning? The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, or the 66 books of God's inerrant word? Which is influencing you most? Which do you know most about? The kingdoms of this world? It doesn't mean that we shouldn't know where we live and all the ways that we have to operate within this world. But it means that this world, this kingdom, is most important. A couple of questions, and I'll come back to them later. Which kingdom consumes most of your attention and time? Which kingdom assumes, consumes most of your attention and time? Which kingdom are you most interested in? Which are you most fascinated with? Which are you most enamored with? The kingdom of this world and its passing ways? Or the kingdom of God? The kingdom of heaven that is eternal? And the last simple little question, not so simple, which kingdom do you resemble more in your life and lifestyle? Which kingdom do you resemble more in your life and lifestyle? How many of you were born and raised south of what we'll call the Mason-Dixon line? This is a more southern crowd. There were eight in the first service. I was raised, as we joke in my house, in a mixed home 
My mother's from New York City and my daddy's from Birmingham, Alabama. You can tell where folks are. You can tell where they are by their accent, by their mannerisms, by how they engage and view the world around. Does the looking world see within you where your citizenship truly lies? That's the question. Which one do we reflect the most? Now, discipleship, which Jesus is highlighting here. Discipleship, I'll give you a a little different definition that I was scribbling uh, down this week. Christian discipleship is essentially learning from the king himself how to be a citizen in his kingdom. Discipleship, Christian discipleship, is learning from Christ the king himself how to be citizens in his kingdom because we're having to unlearn our previous kingdom life. We're having to unlearn all the influences that are around us. We're having to learn the inverted kingdom. We're having to learn what it means to live within that kingdom, what our king's values are, what our citizenship values are, what are the benefits and rewards that come uh, from being in his kingdom, what are some of the difficulties that will come, and then ultimately, what's the end game? Well, that's what we're going to look at uh, here today. We're going to look at three things about the kingdom And Chris continues to influence me, so I've come up with three Ps. How about that? There you go. Kingdom perspective, kingdom persecution, and kingdom promises. We're going to look at kingdom perspective, gaining a kingdom perspective, understanding what kingdom persecution looks like, and then realizing these kingdom promises. And as I said, we don't have time to go through uh, all of these well but I will give them to you, and as I do each time I preach, if you would like uh, my notes, I'll be glad to send them to you in PDF. Just send me an email uh, this week, and I will get those to you. But first, we gain and we see a new kingdom perspective. That's verses 20 through 26. It's the Beatitudes. There are four blesseds, and there are four woes. You take those four, and you lay them over each other. It reads something like this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. But woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil, important, on account of the Son of Man. Some of you have experienced that in your life just because you're a jerk. Just because you're not pleasant, that isn't persecution within the kingdom and a blessedness. That's something you just need to work on. Jesus is saying here, if you experience these things on account of being a part of my kingdom, that's a blessedness. But woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. That word woe uh, is a, a sense of regret and compassion. To put into maybe a a southern flair. Bless his little heart. Bless their heart. That they think they can be filled in this life. Bless their heart. That everybody speaks well of them. Bless their little hearts. That's what Jesus is saying here. There's a sense of tragedy within it. And he speaks of the balance between poverty and riches. Hunger and satisfaction, uh, weeping and laughing uh, of persecution and good and good reputation. 
poverty and riches, we've, we've talked about this before, and I'm only going to spend a moment. I'm really just going to give you an illustration. I want you to hear this. Wealth, and it's not sinful to have wealth. It's not sinful to have wealth. The Bible's filled with wealthy people. Joseph of Arimathea, uh, Abraham was wealthy. There were wealthy people within the scriptures. Wealth is not sinful to have wealth, but it is dangerous. But it is dangerous. Because wealth and money have a way of making us think we don't need anything else. That we're just fine. It's not saying, hey, I want you to everybody be poor. But he's saying this, I want you to have a proper perspective of wealth. And of in the kingdom, it has a different perspective than it is in, in this world. It's fascinating to me, by the way, that at least the men and women right now who have the best perspective of their wealth are non-believers living in the kingdom of this world and not Christians. Warren Buffett, uh, of Bill Gates, uh, of Bezos and others, giving away billions of dollars for the good of humanity. But the church seems to have bought into an idea that we need to keep our wealth and make it generational wealth. We've got to take care of the next generation. Jesus is saying when you come into his kingdom, it changes your perspective on wealth. It changes your perspective on money. It changes your perspective on generosity. I'll give you a quick example. We lived in Memphis for a number of years, and there were two uh, brothers, Alan and Eric uh, Barnhart. They started Barnhart Crane and Rigging. Any of you ever heard of Barnhart Crane and Rigging? Of course you haven't. But Barnhart Crane and Rigging, uh, at least a couple of years ago, was somewhere in the $250 million range of a going enterprise. And these two brothers decided in their Bible study, when they started uh, the business, they saw that it was growing, they saw that it was increasing, they decided, they looked around their Bible study and they looked around their friends in Sunday school, they said, we're going to cap our salaries at the average number, at the average salary of the people within our group. Now, they could have been taking millions out of the company and they capped it. It was a good living. Uh, he said, though, and one of them in an interview uh, recently said he liked the theology of the Rolling Stones. He wanted his children to have Rolling Stones theology. You can't always get what you want. Thought that was probably good for his kids in this world. So he capped it. And then about three years ago, they decided to give the entire company away. Barnhart Crane and Rigging is still worth $250 to $300 million. They still run the company, but it is owned by the Christian Foundation out of Atlanta. They still take their salary, and they give away 50% of all the money that they make and spend the other 50% to put back in the company to make sure it can still do. They have a proper kingdom understanding of money and wealth because they realized it's not about money and wealth. Money and wealth is a means by which we can expand God's kingdom. So if you were a Christian worker, missionary, and somebody coming to Memphis, guess where you went first? It wasn't to a church. You went to Barnhart Crane and Rigging, and you said, hey, I'm serving the king over there in Japan. I'm serving the king in Thailand. I'm serving the king in Mexico. And I hear that your business and that you men have created a business where you take 50% of your profits, millions and millions and millions of dollars every year, and you give it away for kingdom work. I'd like to come and, and to talk to you about my ministry of kingdom. Man, isn't that incredible? By the way, little homework, go do a Google search of Barnhart Crane and Rigging and read that story. It'll challenge you, challenges me in the midst of that. He says we'll have a different understanding and a different perspective of hunger and satisfaction. 
Blessedness is recognizing our hunger for God. We were all created, Philip Ryken says, with a spiritual hunger for truth, an unfulfilled longing for eternity, a desperate craving for love that is at the heart of the universe that only God can satisfy. Touching on St. Augustine when he said, we all, because of the fall, because of sin, have a God-shaped hole in our hearts that can only be filled by him. But we go around trying to satisfy that hunger with all the things of this kingdom here. Because Satan, as a good king of his kingdom, recognizes this. If I can fill their bellies and make their appetites seem as if they're satisfied, they won't really pursue where true satisfaction comes. Another way to understand Ecclesiastes, instead of vanity of vanities, all of life is vanity. One writer put it this way, cotton candy of cotton candies, all of life is cotton candy. For what happens when you eat cotton candy? You take a big bite, and it's the most satisfying, awesome bite that you've ever had in your life for about seven seconds. Then it deteriorates, melts, and leaves a gummy, nasty film on your mouth and all of your fingers. It doesn't satisfy. It actually creates a deeper hunger. That's what Satan understands. That's why sin is so pleasurable. It's not like he's saying, hey, if you want to disobey the king, eat cauliflower. I'd be like, man, I'm the best disciple ever. That doesn't tempt me at all. But he says, oh, you have a hunger for intimacy? Let me show false intimacy over here. Oh, you have a hunger for prestige to be known? Ah, I can do that for you. Come over here. He said, it's better for us. Blessedness is to know our hunger that can only be satisfied in Christ alone. Weeping and laughter he moves through. It's not bad to laugh. As a matter of fact, you and me, we could laugh more, right? We need to be joyful. I imagine there was a lot of laughter in Je around Jesus when they were sitting and talking because they had in their presence the king of eternal joy, and he was there and as he talked, they must have laughed. I, I'm sure there was laughter because there's going to be laughter in heaven and there's going to be laughter in the new heavens, in the new earth when they're established. And Jesus is saying, it's good to laugh, but don't aim at laughter. He's saying it's actually better to weep a bit. The writer of Ecclesiastes wrote again, it's better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of mirth, of laughter. Why? Because it reminds us sometimes of suffering reminds us that this world isn't our world. This kingdom isn't our kingdom. And we are hell-bent on avoiding any kind of suffering in our lives. And Jesus is saying, no, it's actually okay. Embrace it. And then what it can lead to is a joy that one day will be full on laughter. And then he brings up this couplet. Blessed are you when you suffer and are persecuted for Christ's sake. But woe to you who everyone likes you. Woe to you if no one has ever challenged you or rejected you for Christ's sake. How many of you enjoy being rejected? Anyone? Of course not. We again work our entire lives to make sure that we can be accepted. 
I went to a very large public school and there were factions and subcultures within it. Uh, there were the deadheads and the preps and the gangbangers and the, and the rednecks and the nerds. And I was able to find uh, that I could change who I was just enough to be accepted within every single one of those groups. And the problem that I found at the end of the day was I had no idea who I was. I didn't know what I stood for. I didn't know what I was willing to stand for because I was willing to do whatever it was in order to have a good reputation with everyone. And Jesus is saying, be very careful about that because guess who had a terrible reputation in the kingdom of this world? Do you know? Jesus. They hated him. They rejected him. They said, crucify him. We hate this guy so much we want him dead. We want him out of here. And Jesus is saying, no disciple, no citizen of the kingdom is above his king. If the king was rejected, get ready, Christians. You will be rejected and persecuted at some level. This is the, this is the challenge of it all. To be universally popular is a most unsatisfactory symptom of, and on which a disciple of Christ should always be afraid. To be universally popular. But didn't that what we teach beginning at an early age. With our kids in school. And so Jesus is saying friends. Where do you see yourself? He's doing what the Puritans used to call dividing the audience. Which kingdom do you find in yourself more? Where do you see yourself? And this is a good test for each of us. And so as we find these things in us. And we may find I do see persecution happening. Uh, I do see the difficulty of living life, the warring of these two things. Then we need to have an understanding of kingdom persecution. It's the second main point. Here's a key assumption that I'll give to you today. Persecution and suffering is an expected characteristic of the Christian life. It shouldn't be unexpected. It's expected. Persecution and suffering for Christ should be expected, not unexpected. Some of you have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and pastor who was in New York during the war, and he could have stayed there and lived and been safe, but he went back as an enemy of the state uh, in Nazi Germany, and he continued his ministry there, continuing to train men and women there for uh, Christian discipleship and ministry, and ultimately Bonhoeffer was martyred you need to read a, a, read a biography of, Bar, of Bonhoeffer. It, it will encourage you. But he wrote this. Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. If that's the case, by the way, I don't know if I can raise my hand to be a true disciple. I've had some flea bites of persecution. But persecuted for Christ's sake? Oh. Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. That is why Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to, suffer, to the suffering Christ. And it's therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. Amen? Yeah, not too many amens on that one. You're kind of like, can I do the kingdom thing without the suffering thing? Jesus would say no, which primarily means, or which means we are primarily doing kingdom life incorrectly. That's my only assumption that I can come to. 
That as if there is no persecution, there's no suffering within most of our lives, and most of us would say that, for the sake of Christ, a few of you could give an example. But if most of us have no suffering for the name of Christ, that must mean that we're not doing something right. We're not living it out properly. Right? Am I off on that? Yeah, I can't tell. You got masks on. You're like, I'm not. That's all. And so I look. And go, okay, Lord, I want to pray a dangerous prayer. I want to pray that my witness in the community, in the kingdom of this world, would be such that people wouldn't like me. I want to preach in such a way that people in the church may leave because they don't like what I'm saying. God, do something in and through me that will upset the king of the other kingdom. And I've spent most of my life, and so have most of us, trying not to kick that other king and wake him up. And Jesus is inviting us right into it. And he says, when that persecution comes, when that difficulty comes, we respond differently. We respond to that differently. And I'm going to just kind of talk to these, talk to the uh, quickly on these. But he says here, love your enemies. That's primarily how we respond. Love your enemies. Guess what word choice he gives for the word love there? There's four, storge, agape, uh, eros, and philia in the Greek. Guess which one he chooses here, agape. It's the only unnatural love. It's the only one that can be supernaturally generated. It, it can't be fallen into. It's not like brothers and sisters who get along. It's not anything other than God doing a supernatural work within you to love somebody who doesn't like you. Think about it just for a moment. Who's somebody who really doesn't like you? Can you think of anybody? Anybody? I can think of a bunch of people. That doesn't take me long. I got a list of people that I have unfollowed but don't really want them to know I'm unfollowing them on social media because I don't want them to not like me. But I know they don't like me, but I don't want to do it. So it's saying this. And then when I see that person, have you all ever had a person come to you who you really don't like and they really don't like you? Have you ever seen them coming towards you? How do you respond? I've picked up my phone before and pretended that I'm talking. And then my phone rings and you're kind of embarrassed that it's there. Or you turn the other direction. I remember coming, and this guy wasn't even an enemy. He was a former boss at a church. And I saw him coming into the Ingalls up in Cashers. And he was coming in this way. And I went, and I turned around and ran out the other way. Because I can't stand that guy. And I know he doesn't really like me. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 Bill. Love them. Agape them. Pray that there be a supernatural movement of the Holy Spirit in your life which would move towards them, not away from them. That's hard enough in the family, right? It's hard enough to love brothers and sisters. He's saying, now love your enemies. He's saying, go and, and do it in this totally different way. And he says, some of you are going, okay, so what does that look like? Well, the disciples were asking the same question, and Jesus gives eight ways that you can do this. Now, you don't have to write them all down. They're right there in the chapter. He says, do you want to love your enemy? Here's some practical examples. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to them. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. 
Do you see a progression there? Do something with your hands. Serve them. Bless them. Now speak. You actually have to speak to them. You can't just drop a cake off on their door. You've got to knock on the door and ring the doorbell. And you're going, that's hard enough. Then you have to take their name and bring it before the king of the universe and pray for them. What a movement. If someone strikes you on the cheek, offer them the other cheek as well. If someone takes your cloak, offer your tunic as well. Give to everyone who begs from you. Don't demand your goods back from those who take from, from you. By the way, these are not applied to the civil authority. Too many people misunderstand these. These are applied within the Christian life between persons. This isn't speaking on a civil government level. And then he says, as the golden rule, as you with, wish others would do to you, do to them also. Notice this about the golden rule. It is not your way of salvation, but it does show whether you are saved. You're not saved by the golden rule, but it exposes your heart to love others as you would be loved and want to be loved. Jesus is saying, go and do that. Maybe today you need to write the email. Maybe today you need to make the phone call. Maybe today you need to move towards the person that you've been moving away from. I don't have time, but I remember the story of my mother who was raised by a horrible man, an alcoholic, an abuser, and he treated her so poorly as a stepdaughter. She took me and my sister and my dad there when he was dying, and she said, I've come to faith in Christ, and I want you to know that I forgive you. How does that happen? Except for the extraordinary, supernatural movement of the Holy Spirit for her to move towards a man who has damaged her life even as an 87-year-old now and say to him, I love you and I forgive you. That's what Christ is calling us to. And the greatest obstacles to that, again, you'll have to read about them. He says there, judge not unless you'll be judged. He doesn't say don't point out a wrong and there's a wrong here. But he's saying this, the greatest, the greatest obstacle to you living out this kingdom way of responding is your judgmentalism. That we ha have PhDs in the specs in other people's eyes. And we have no understanding at all that we're carrying around a log in our own. We can talk and we can decipher and we can look at the sin in everybody else's life and the Christians should talk less about the sin in everybody else's life and repent more about the sin in their own. At the heart of Christianity is Christianity on its knees. It's men and women owning our own stuff. And then in that humility, being able to go out, he says, point out the speck, but make sure you enter in with humility in the midst of it. And so the key to remembering all of the, the key to doing this is remembering the gospel. God was generous and merciful to you. And then friends, I've got to end here. Those kingdom promises, we've said there's a new kingdom perspective. We have to understand that there will be kingdom persecution. But at the end of the day, remember these kingdom promises. Christ says, if you are his follower, you are truly blessed. If you are a citizen of his kingdom, what you gain in that is the favor of the king. That is incredible news. 
that his opinion of you is that you are awesome, is that you're his child, his son or daughter. He says you're adopted in as my son or daughter, that your reward is great in heaven. He says, and that your life is built upon a solid foundation that will never crumble. How many of you all have experienced something in your life that had the potential to devastate you, but you experienced in the midst of that a stability that you could only say was from Christ? Any of you? Why is that? Because if we put our foundation down into the true kingdom, it's made of different material. It's a heavenly, supernatural material. And when your friends and family go, how did you do that? My life is seemingly falling apart and yours isn't. Don't shy away. Say, let me tell you about the material that I had. And it's a material that's from another kingdom. And then I'm able to walk through what I'm walking through. Because of the great promises of my God and King. And that though there may be a lack in this life. God promises that there will be an abundance in the life to come. Friends, those are good promises. But as we end, let me ask you again this question. Which kingdom do you reflect more in this world? The people who are in your life most, would they be able to convict you of being a citizen of heaven? And if not, Are you willing today to recommit yourself to following the king, of learning a kingdom life, and of growing in your discipleship with him? And if you're here curious today, would you be willing to follow the king, to come to him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to study it even for a moment. It's to scratch its surface. Father, I admit that too often I'm enamored by the kingdom of this world. Forgive me for that. Father, I pray that you would stir within me a desire to know more about your kingdom, what it means to live in your kingdom and be a citizen of your kingdom. Father, for all those who are here and listening today, I pray that we would we would put our lives under the banner of King Jesus and that we would serve him in this life knowing that he will rule and reign forever and eternity and that is true blessedness to us. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.